Therapy Chat Podcast, Episode 85. This is the Therapy Chat Podcast with Laura Reagan, LCSWC. The information shared in this podcast is not a substitute for seeking help from a licensed mental health professional. And now, here's your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now, for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. I'm Laura Reagan, your host, and I'm excited to bring you an interview with my friend and colleague, Mercedes Samudio today. Mercedes is someone who has worked as a parent coach and as a family therapist, and she's really been on a mission to change the way we talk about parenting. Mercedes has been working to spread awareness of her idea of ending parent shaming which she calls shame-proof parenting. Recently, she published a new book on this subject, and I admire her work very much. I'm excited to bring this discussion to you. Today in this interview, we are going to talk about how our culture views parenting, what kinds of cultural messages drive parenting behavior, and how if we change the way we talk about what parenting is, we can make a difference in abuse and really just help families much more. So I hope you'll be inspired by our interview as I was. Let's go ahead and just dive right in. Here's my interview with Mercedes Samudio, LCSW. Hi, welcome back to Therapy Chat. Today, I have a wonderful returning guest who I know you all are going to enjoy listening to. Today, I'm interviewing for the second time the person who was my first ever guest on this podcast, Mercedes Samudio. Mercedes, thank you so much for being on Therapy Chat today. Thank you so much for having me again, (laughs) Laura. Nice to be here. (laughs) Yeah, both of us have sort of changed in so many ways since that time when we had our first interview, and you have a very exciting project happening right now. So let's just start off by if you could tell our audience a little bit about who you are and what your big thing is that you're doing now. 
Thank you. Yeah. So like Laura said, my name is Mercedes Samudio and I am a licensed clinical social worker and parent coach. And I am right now about to launch or have launched, depending on when you listen, the book Shame Proof Parenting. And this book is kind of like my baby because it is the culmination of a year and a half long campaign that I've had on social media with the hashtag in parent shaming. And what I wanted to do with this book is not just talk about ending parent shaming for both mothers and fathers, but I wanted to really give us a framework that we as professionals, as well as caregivers and parents can use to really take stock of how shame infiltrates their parenting and how it changes the way that they see themselves and their parenting identity, as well as how we as a society can get better at acknowledging that parents are human too. And that by giving them the space to figure things out and not shaming and judging them, we're actually saving children and saving families. Oh, that's so beautiful. And I know that this has been your passion for a long time. And it's kind of culminated with the idea of shame proof parenting. Uh You and I were talking before we started recording about how, you know, all of us who are passionate about working with children and families really care so much about the well-being of the kids and, you know, feeling so much, sometimes so much responsibility for helping to break the cycle of abuse that can perpetuate in families through generations. I know that's something that I care about. And I know you care very much about that, but Mm -hmm. shaming parents and labeling can, can really get in the way. It really can, I think. And I think, again, as we were talking before, it's not always intentional. I think the majority of us who care about children and children's welfare, we use research, we use what we know, we use the sessions and the clients that we've been blessed to come in contact with to kind of almost want to shake our parents out of of their kind of complacency and saying, hey, you can't do that, you know? And I think that on one end, yes, we, we need to do that. We, we have that responsibility as healers or as stewards of our generation to do that. But what I propose is that we don't do it in a way that's shaming. We do it in a way that allows that parent to at least begin to reflect on why they made that decision in their parenting. Where does that come from? Does it come from their expectations of themselves, which sometimes I think it does. Our society says, parents, you've got to do X, Y, and Z to make sure your kids don't turn out to be you know, horrible. And so parents have so much pressure. But I also think it comes from their own ideologies and their own expectations of what it means to raise a child. And if we take the time to listen to that and try to figure out the bigger picture of how did that person form their own parenting identity? How did they come to understand that this is the way to discipline their child? If we can figure that out and sit with our own discomfort long enough to figure that out, I think that we can begin to change the cycle of abuse. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think in our culture, there are these implicit messages that if your kid quote unquote, misbehaves. And that can be anything from speaking back to you, you know, Uh not not behaving disrespectfully, or basically anything besides just like quietly standing there. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Then, you know, our culture says, Oh, you're doing something wrong. Like what's wrong Uh with you that your kid is acting like that? Correct. 
And I think that's a pressure that a lot of parents have. I think on one end, yes, it's society saying, hey, your kid has to always be on their P's and Q's at all times, which I think you and I both know that is a very impossible standard for any human, whether you be a child or an adult. It's hard just to stand by idly and not have ideas and not have reactions and emotions to what you're experiencing. But I think we ask our parents to do that with their children. So that's one half of it. I think the other half of it then also is what does this parent know about their kid? What does this parent know about themselves? And can this parent handle the discomfort of their child having so many emotions and so many behaviors in their child's attempt to get their needs met? And I think when we shame parents, we really decrease the level of tolerance and discomfort that a parent can tolerate when they're managing their kid. I think when we stop judging parents, parents began to really fill up their own bucket of patience and tolerance and being able to sit in that discomfort long enough to be present with their child. You know, this this is reminding me of something that happened last year. And well, it's it's you said a year and a half ago is when you came up with the end parent shaming. And I think it's about coming up on two years ago when the unrest in Baltimore after Mm -hmm. Freddie Gray's death happened. And are we thinking about the same story where the woman was the woman in the yellow dress? I'll never forget. Yes. Yeah. So is that where this started for you? Kind of the the public discussion of that. And you can tell the story about what it was if you want. Yeah, sure. Now that you say that, I feel like maybe I've been doing this longer. Yeah, because <laughs> that was summer like, almost two years yeah. ago. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I remember seeing that. And it's so interesting because I was doing family therapy then. I hadn't been doing coaching at all yet. And I remember having parents come in and say, you know, Mercedes, I feel like even though that mom did something I wanted to do, it's so upsetting to see that mom get revered and praised because I think even one of the the police captains came out and praised her for doing that, Mm -hmm. right? You still have parents who are being reported to DCFS. And I think eventually, unfortunately, she did get a child protective services report on her. But the idea here is that cultural idea where this mother as a black woman was seeing her only son out there who could possibly get hurt either by the mob or by, I mean, by the riots that were out there or by the police. And she had a reaction, right? She did what I think almost any mother would do, whether you're black, white, you know, Latino or whatever. If you see your kid out there on the news, you're scared for your child. And she went out there and reacted to what she was feeling, to that anxiety. But I think for me, what the message came out is, is that society can tell a parent when it's okay to do that and when it's not. And when you have that kind of flip-flop in ideology, it's hard to know, am I supposed to hit my kid to make sure they're not a menace to society? Or if I hit my kid, is that abuse? Like, where's the line? And I think with that mom being kind of, you know, put on in the media so much, I think it made things really confusing for parents who are like, well, I hit, but everybody tells me that's wrong. And this mom who did hit her child very aggressively, and and it was a video of it, she was kind of praised and told, yeah, that's what you do if you want to make sure your kids don't turn out wrong. You know, I feel like that. People said she was mother of the year. So she was both being put on a pedestal by some groups and vilified by others. Yes. And I think that flip flop is why we still have such a hard time with corporal punishment in, in our culture of parenting, because you have parents that say, 
you know what, if I don't pop my kid, then they're going to, then someone else is going to have to deal with them later on. They're going to be in jail. They're going to be delinquents. Other people are going to be making fun of me. You know, schools are going to be telling you that we're going to kick your kid out. So I've got to pop them. But then on the other hand, you've got research that says hitting a child or being abusive to a child in that way, you know, doesn't also equally can bring them into delinquency and trauma and those type of reactive behaviors. So you sit at home as a parent trying to think, what am I supposed to do? Do I hit them? No. Do I, you know, do what I think might be quote unquote permissive parenting? No. What do I do? And I think that's why shaming and judging parents is so detrimental to that whole process that a parent is sitting at home daily trying to make sure that the person they are tasked with and responsible for does not go out into the world and and is, you know, not able to be an active citizen. They want their child to be an active citizen. And they struggle, I think, every day. Most parents, I'm sure the ones you've seen and the ones that I've worked with, most parents struggle with, how do I do that? Yeah, I mean, this this is such a rich point that we're both making here because one, you talked about people sitting at home and thinking, so I'm not supposed to hit. Uh, some instances, it's okay to hit. I don't know what to believe. I don't know what to do. And I think for us to recognize, it's important for us to recognize that when someone begins to think about that, it can be so emotionally flooding mm. that they can just shut down right there because yes. there's, you know, in their, in their mind, in their body, they're also recalling whatever they went through and, you know, if they've ever been hit and their own prior trauma. Yes. And it's just, it's too overwhelming. And so they can't decide what to do and they just kind of get stuck and then they continue to be reactive to the emotional response, you know, that comes up like for that mom, I wouldn't trade places with her for anything. Yes. She was watching TV, saw her son on there, saw those police in riot gear. Yes. Oh my gosh. I would have wanted to go and yank my son out of there too. However I could. Yes. You know, and, and I don't know what I would have done. And she didn't go on there planning to become a reality TV star. She just right. was trying to get her kid out of that situation. She did, I guess, what she knew to do. She just did yes. what seemed right in the moment. Yes. And I think you hit on something that's really integral to the practice that I do in my coaching, which is I want to hear your story as a parent. I don't want to just say you're abusive and you're not doing it right and you need to understand that research says and this is the right parenting. I want to hear your story. Tell me what happened. You know, whether it was with that mom, let's just say, you know, I was able to be her parent coach or any other parent. I want to know what leads you to make the decisions you do in your parenting. And I mean that both positive and negative. So the the decisions where you're like, oh, I feel like I've really got it. Tell me about those decisions. You know, if you're really good at helping your kids with homework, tell me how you got there. How did you understand to be that, you know, patient with your child doing homework? And if you feel like you're not really good when they back talk, well, talk to, talk me through when your kid back talks, what goes on for you? Mm -hmm. And the more I hear those stories, the more I get to understand this parent's understanding of themselves and their own parenting identity and how they formulated it. And that is where I give them some of the collaborative skills to figure out how to kind of get through through those parts of your parenting that's going to trigger you because not every parent is triggered the same. Some parents don't care if their kids talk back, but they cannot handle a kid who, you know, won't listen to them when they're on like when they're trying to talk to them. Mm -hmm. Or some parents are I remember I had one foster mom who says, I don't care what's going on with the kids. They just have to go to school every day. Like literally she would take any foster kid, no matter what their history, no matter what, but they had to go to school. She was not going to take a foster kid who had a history of not going to school. And I remember thinking that mother was so aware of herself 
you know, I remember fighting with my supervisor saying, no, we cannot put this child in this woman's home because she said if this kid doesn't go to school, that's the only thing that she has an issue with. And I remember my supervisor thinking, well, you know, she needs to learn how to take any parent, any kid we give her. And I'm like, no, we can't do that. We cannot tell a parent that is trying to let us know what her limit is Mm -hmm. that she has to take it. You know, we have to listen. If she'll take any of our other children, let's give her those children. But if we have a child that has a history of ditching or not going to school, let's find another placement for them. And that kind of that was way back when, when I was still like not even licensed, that I began to realize that our society sometimes forces parents to fit in a box because they have to know how to parent. They have to do it. It's your kid, as opposed to listening to what that parent's limits are and giving them the resources and the support. So when they are triggered when they hit up against that limit. They don't feel the need to be abusive. They know that I can go and get some support. Exactly. And, you know, one thing you're talking about is just treating the parent as a human being, too, instead of uh-huh. acting as if only the child matters in the yes. in the family dynamic. And obviously, yes. you will never get anywhere trying to help a parent with parenting when you act like the child is the only one that matters because the parent is asking you to help them. Yes. And I think it has to be, I think we have to really understand how family systems work or how systems work where everybody has an important role in the family, the child, the parents, and whoever else you call your family, whether it's, you know, great, I mean, grandparents or aunts and uncles, everybody has a role. And I think when we sit and listen to how these roles either help or hinder we can really figure out, okay, how can I provide support to this family system? So for me, it's not just about the parent and it's not just about the child, but it's about, okay, how does this whole family system work? Who has the control in this family system? Who is kind of the person who has the most symptoms in this family system? And where can we provide support in those parts of the system where nobody is fitting that role? Nobody has enough um, space in their identity to fill that role. I think it's really important for us to understand that too. Yes. Everyone is playing an important role. Uh-huh. Yes. And, you know, another thing I want to touch on, I mean, I know we're just talking about this one point, but I just feel like there was so much in that. There's a cultural aspect, too, because uh-huh. I remember when that that mom was on TV, I was watching all of that that was happening in Baltimore after Freddie Gray's death because I live near there and it's my community uh-huh. and I used to work in that community. and. Uh-huh. You know, and I care about the issue anyway, but um, yes. it was really close to home. And I I read at least one article where someone pointed out that there's a lot of people happily cheering in the background when a black boy is getting hit. Mm. You know, kind of the what does our culture say about who it's OK to abuse on mm-hmm. TV and think that it's, you know, yeah, he's yeah. getting you know, he's getting taught a lesson. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and with the, all of the racial unrest that that whole situation was related to, you know, it's impossible to ignore that piece when people are saying, yeah, yeah, she should have, she should have done more, you know? And it's like, where's his humanity in this? And yes. And how does culture and racism basically play a role and how we see what's okay to do and what's not. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think I'll name drop two people who I admire who are talking about the culture of African-Americans and spanking their children. So Dr. Stacy Patton and Azadeh Kir- Azada Kirkland, they both have books. And I'm not going to butcher the book names, but like I said, Dr. Stacy Patton and 
Asada Kirkland. They both have books that really explore what it looks like in the African-American culture and how we came to understand spanking and child raising and why it's so important for us to really begin to shift this myth that all Black parents spank their kids and that all Black kids should be spanked. Because I, again, I, I am not for corporal punishment, but I'm also for really understanding that each culture has its own kind of relationship with child raising. And that in order to really, again, go back to my point of ending parent shame, we can't have this kind of European white understanding of it for everything. We have to look at each person's culture and say, how did child raising look for this culture and how has it looked over the years, especially in times of social and racial unrest when these cultures are being marginalized and oppressed? Parents have a different understanding of child raising when I know that my kid can go out to the street and be unfortunately hurt or arrested or killed. I'm going to raise my child differently than someone who has a kid that never has to think about that. And so to praise or demonize, I'll, I'll stay with the African-American family, to praise or demonize an African-American parent for spanking their child without understanding why that parent did it and really trying to help that parent get to that goal of protecting their child in a different way, I think we really are doing a disservice to our families who, again, culturally have had to deal with things that are different than maybe the the more affluent or the more European way of seeing the world. Right. And I don't want to misspeak. So is Dr. Patton the one who you and I were talking about before who talks about the role of colonialism in? Yes. 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 Yeah, she just had a really great piece that she did in the Washington Post, I believe. And again, I can't I can't think of the title of it, but I loved how she explored culturally and how child raising became how spanking and child raising became really synonymous with black culture and where it came from. How did we as black people learn spanking and why do we still do it? Again, I think she's probably the person to really expound on it more. But I really love that she's bringing that historical presence to light. So that way we're not just demonizing black women or praising black women or black fathers too for for raising their children this way, but we're trying to really understand, okay, if this is the way that they do child raise, or if this is the way that black people are raising their children because they're trying to make sure that their children are not harmed and that their children are not being oppressed even more, what can we do to kind of help them meet that same need, but at the same time begin to wean black families off of spanking? What can we do? It's not just simply stop it, Right. But I think, you know, and again, I, I totally agree with Dr. Patton and saying spare the kids, stop spanking. But for me, I think it's deeper. It's not just stop it, but it's let's look at why would a black parent spank their child? Why would they do that? And let's figure out how to help them meet that need in a way that does not involve spanking. Right. And then what's the role of, you know, when colonialism and oppression are mm-hmm. part of the cause, then what's the role of systems in removing those children from their parents' care because of the way they were raised? I'm, you're feeling me, aren't you? I, yes. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I remember one of my amazing uh, supervisors, her name is Diane Griggs, and she practices in L.A., California. She Gave me. She talked to me about how in L.A. County specifically, I can't talk about other counties, but in L.A. County specifically, black children are disproportionately represented in the child protective system. Yeah. And I think it's because we don't always understand what spanking looks like. It's not saying that spanking isn't abusive. I'm not trying to rewrite history here. But when a black parent spanks their child, I think, again, there is cause to sometimes say, is this abuse or is this just what that parent knows? And what can we do to really learn the nuances between what does it look like when a person 
is abusing their child? And what does it look like when this parent just doesn't know what to do? They don't have any other parenting strategies. How can we stop just taking children? And again, in LA County, how can we just stop taking black children out of their homes? And how can we look at how can we change the systemic understanding of child raising for a community who may not always have the skill set to do it in a better way? Yeah. And how can the child welfare programs actually promote child welfare instead of just simply removing kids and not helping the families to address the underlying cause of the abusive behavior, which, you know, you and I also were talking about this offline that, you know, I think we both agree that most verbal, emotional and physical abuse is actually not intentional. Right. Um, of course, there right. are people who literally deliberately torture their children, yes. and that is yes. deliberate. Yes. But there are so many parents who that is not their intention at all. It's just the only way they know to right. raise their children. And I was going to say, and you know, one thing that I, I really caution too in our in our world is not to allow those extremes to also be your justification for for judging a, a parent that you don't really know. I agree with you. I think there's always news about how this parent, you know, hurt their child in a way that the social worker wasn't there on time or somebody, you know, really that child fell to the cracks. And those are really heartbreaking to me for two reasons. Number one, because I'm pretty sure that, you know, the, the social workers who are doing this work are doing the best that they can. So it sucks that our profession continuously gets demonized because those are the only stories that kind of get put in the media. Mm-hmm. But it also hurts me because every time we see those stories, I also see an outcry for parents to be judged more and shamed more because we're taking those stories, those extreme, atrocious, horrible stories. And we're saying, well, you know what, Laura, you did pop your kid yesterday. So, you know, we got you're abusive and not really being able to delineate this idea of when a child, when a parent is spanking, what is it to really ask yourself, what is this when a, a parent is being verbally abusive, emotionally abusive? What is it? Is it this parent who is totally saying, I don't care about my kids, I do want to hurt them? Or is it a parent who's saying, I don't know what else to do, I've tried everything else, and this is the only thing that seems to work? When I hear a parent tell me that, I immediately have empathy for them, because I'm like, okay, if you think this is it, and this is the only way you can do it, we really need to work with what's going on in this family system, what's going on for you and your pressures, and then what's going on for this kid, and how does he know how to get his needs met as well? It's really important for me to look at it that way, as opposed to just thinking that every parent who hits or is emotionally abusive to their kid is just doing it intentionally. Exactly. And so that's where, you know, your end parent shaming concept is when we label parents as bad people. Yes. Because they do something in a way that is even harmful. Yes. We lose any opportunity to reach the person and help them change the behavior. And that's a really important statement that you just make. I think it's really important for us to realize that, that when you begin to judge and shame people, they begin to hide more. I can't tell you how many parents have told me that they probably should have come to me sooner, but they were just so scared of what, you know, so when the other fill in somebody's name would think, I'm scared of what the school might have thought. I'm scared of what my parents would have thought, you know, because they didn't want people to know that they needed help raising their kids. And what does that mean? Like for someone to say that, I don't want people to know I need help. We don't feel that way in any other aspect. We don't say, oh man, I I didn't take my car to the shop because I was scared the mechanic might think I'm an idiot. No, we take our car to the shop, you know? And I think in those moments when I hear a parent say, I was just scared of what people might think, or I thought we had it, or I thought we should have known already how to deal with this. 
those are those statements where I'm like, it's really important for us to really look at how we shame parents because there are so many parents who every day are fighting this battle of, am I doing it right? And to be told that they're not constantly or to be shamed constantly, they don't reach out for help. And those are probably the families that really do need the most support. Absolutely. And it escalates more and more and more because the person is just so overwhelmed and so with such a lack of resources to address what's happening. And of course, you know, it's like an exponential effect. Yes, I agree. And again, at the end of the day, I think for me, I feel like the reason why I'm so big on ending parent shame and shame proofing parents is because yes, at the end of the day, it is still for me about the child. It's still about saying if I can give their caregiver more support and more space to be an authentic human and model for that parent what it looks like to get that space. Because I think there are a lot of parents who never got that space before they became parents. They never got a space to be human or to be emotional or to be anything other than stern and strong. So I love giving my parents that space to be human and and to kind of be in their whole fluidity of emotions because then that models for them, oh, it's not shameful to be emotional. I can deal with my toddler and their emotions because someone has given me the space to deal with my own. It's kind of like this cyclical, this positive cycle of when I give this parent that space, it gives them more space to give it to their child. Exactly. It's like when you help that parent have maybe an experience that is new for them where they're Mm -hmm. seen and heard and understood and, and nurtured. Yes. They're able to do the same for their children. Yes. Which the, the opposite is, is kind of the same when a parent is shamed and has to be defensive all the time and has to explain themselves all the time and, and kind of fight tooth and nail for people to see them, then that's all they know. So they don't know how to give their kid anything other than that. You know what I mean? So when you're yeah. thinking, oh, I'm going to tell Laura what she's doing because she needs to understand. Well, now Laura's going to do the same thing to her child. She's going to say, well, you need to understand that what you're doing is really bad. It's like we don't realize that because we don't see it. We don't see what happens after I've shaken my finger at Laura. I don't see what happens when you go home. But we need to be able to at least assume that if I'm going to be mean to this parent and judge them, what's going to happen to their family at home? Like to actually take some time to think about that before you begin to, to share your advice with a parent. Oh gosh, it's such a good example. Cause it just reminds me of two things. Like if you were in the grocery store and you saw, um, let's say a man being abusive to his partner and you try to shame him and say, you can't do that to her. You, yeah. You're, you're an abuser. And you know, and then they leave together and then what's going to happen to her mm-hmm. as a result of that. And, and the same token, when you see, parents who are screaming at their kids, they're, you know, yeah. threatening to hit them in the store and you feel like you want to intervene and protect the kids, you know, instead of yeah. empathizing with the parent, how overwhelmed they feel, you're not making it better for the kids. Yes. And I think, again, I'll, I'll say this, there are ways to help children. If you really do see a child being like, obviously hurt. There are national child abuse hotlines. There are regional and local child abuse hotlines that I totally encourage people to use. But I feel like even that is more important than shaming the parent. Even if I decide, you know what, I I think I saw Laura, you know, punch her son right in the chest. I don't like that. Let me call my local child abuse. I would rather you do that because then someone will come out and investigate and get that family the resources that they need other than me just going up to Laura and saying, hey, you can't do that to your kid. You know, that's horrible because at the end of the day, you don't go home with Laura and her child. You don't go home with them. So, yes, you said something. Yes, you spoke up and you might feel really good about yourself. But then they go home 
and you don't know what happens next. Hopefully you think Laura thinks, oh man, that was wrong. That person is right. Let me do it better. But more times than not, you know, that mom or that dad is feeling so much shame and so much embarrassment that they're not able to be as reflective as they might need to be with that behavior or with what they did. Exactly. So let's talk a little bit about, um, in the rest of the time we have, can you tell our audience about what you cover in your book and how, you know, how you address shame, parent shaming? Yeah. So what I do in the book is I really kind of present the shame proof parenting framework as not another set of parenting strategies that you need to, you know, memorize and do. But I talk about it in terms of how can you begin to see how shame infiltrates your parenting and your parenting identity in a way that changes the way you respond to yourself and in turn, how you respond to your child. One of the things that I'm really a huge proponent of is not teaching families how there's no conflict, but teaching parents that even in conflict, when things are really difficult and behaviors are really hard, how to really connect to your family and connect to your parenting identity so that way you guys can grow together as opposed to allowing those instances to disconnect you and take you away from your family, your child, and your parenting identity. And so I talk a lot about that. In the book, I also talk about the gender divide in parenting and how it's always about ending mom shame because I think moms have so much more pressure on themselves to be the right parent and the good parent. But I also bring in this idea that dads are also a really important integral piece of the family and how can we minimize shame for them? How can we help them to recognize how the shame of being, you know, the babysitter, so to speak, infiltrates how they respond to their child and how they respond to the different pressures and barriers that come with being a parent. And then lastly, I talk a lot about how important it is to find your own shame-proof parenting village. And that is not just a village full of other parents, but it's also a village full of people who can support every instance of your identity, whether it be as a mother, as a father, as an entrepreneur, as a yoga instructor, whoever you are, you need that support village to be able to support you. So that way you're not just solely resting on how horrible or great of a parent you are. You're resting on the fact that you are a full, authentic human. And in my summation, in my idea, if I can teach parents how to be full, a full human, not just in their parenting identity, but in every aspect of their identity, they'll have more space, like I said earlier, to do that for their child. They'll allow their child to be a full human. Yes, with all of the strengths and weaknesses that we all bring to all Mm -hmm. of our relationships and interactions throughout life. Yes, yes. It's a good model. Like I, I always say that, like when parents can do that, then it models for children what it looks like to be an authentic human in every aspect of their lives, whether it be as a child, as an adult, as a, you know, as an employee, whatever they, wherever they go, if they've seen a parent who is fully integrated as a human, not just as mom or dad, but as a full human, they're able to say, I have a model for what it looks like to be an authentic human, imperfections and all, messiness and all. Yeah. So they know they don't have to be perfect. Uh-huh. And the parent can admit that they can't be perfect either. We're all just doing the best we can. Yes. Agreed. Well, I think your book sounds so wonderful. In fact, I've read some of it and I know that it is wonderful. Um, Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) So where can people find your book and your work and connect with you? So everywhere, all I'm pretty much, you can start at 
shameproofparenting.com. And that is pretty much my hub for all of the things. So you can definitely find my book there. You can see my blogs. I also have a YouTube show called The Family Couch. You can get the link there. And then all of my social media links are also on the homepage. So if you want to connect with me via social media, you can do that from just starting at shameproofparenting.com. Beautiful. And I'll put the link to that in the show notes. And uh, full disclosure, I've been on the family couch. I don't think it's, it hasn't come out yet, but um, maybe no, by the hasn't. time this airs, people will have heard it. We'll see. Awesome. Mercedes, thank you so much for coming back to Therapy Chat today. I love the work you're doing. You're making such a big difference in the world. And I'm so grateful that you came and talked to us about it today. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Mercedes Samudio, LCSW. Her passion for her work really comes through and she is truly making a difference in the world. I'm so proud to say that we are friends. As I mentioned in the interview, Mercedes was my first guest on Therapy Chat and we've really both grown a lot since that time. The issues that we were talking about are not simple. They're very complex, but the solutions are there. Sociologists have done the research on the causes of the violence in our culture, and they can tell us the solutions as well. So when these problems seem so impossible, they're not. It's just a matter of us having the will to make the changes that we need to make so that we can have a culture that's more harmonious, more loving, with more compassion, and less shaming. Check out Mercedes's book, Shameproof Parenting, Find your unique parenting voice, feel empowered, and raise whole, healthy children. You can make a difference, and the change you make in yourself will have a ripple effect through your children, your community, and our society as a whole. You can find her book on Amazon.com, and it's doing very well on the Amazon bestsellers list. So thanks again for listening. Look in the show notes for links to everything we talked about in this interview. And don't forget to download the Therapy Chat app from the iTunes store. If you have an iPhone or iPad, you can have the app on your phone so that you can get every episode. They're all together in one place. You can go back and find them easily. Of course, you can also find them on my website, therapychatpodcast.com. Try Therapy Notes, the number one rated electronic health record system available today. With live telephone support seven days a week, it's clear why Therapy Notes is rated 4.9 out of 5 stars on Trustpilot and has a 5-star rating on Google. Therapy Notes makes billing, scheduling, note-taking, and telehealth incredibly easy. And now for all you prescribers out there, Therapy Notes is proudly introducing ePrescribe. Try it today with no strings attached and see why everyone is switching to Therapy Notes, now featuring ePrescribe. You can get two months free by using promo code CHAT at therapynotes.com. Trauma Therapist Network is a website to learn about trauma and how it shows up in our lives and to find a trauma therapist. Go to traumatherapistnetwork.com to find a trauma therapist near you today. Hey, this is Laura Reagan. You may have heard my therapy chat interview with Charlotte Heiler Easley, LCSW, who's an EGALA and PATH certified psychotherapist offering 
Equine Assisted Psychotherapy in Lexington, Kentucky, which aired last fall. Charlotte is doing beautiful work and I loved our conversation. In fact, it motivated me to begin spending time mounted and unmounted with horses. And I've been in love from the first moment. If you've been following therapy chat, you've probably heard some of my discussions about this in November and December of 2016. And if you missed our interview, you can listen by going to my website, therapychatpodcast.com and look for episode 56. That interview was very powerful for many people. And based on that, Charlotte and I have decided we want to offer two day long retreats here in Maryland, combining my work with hers. So one day will be for therapists and the other day is for anyone who wants to connect deeply within both days. We will be journeying inward to connect with ourselves and make connections with one another using elements of the daring way together with Charlotte's EAP work. We already have the dates. All we need is to finalize the location and then we will be opening registration. So if you're excited about this, please email me at Laura at Laura Reagan, LCSWC.com or go on therapychatpodcast.com and you will see a link to contact me and I can add you to the list to be notified when registration opens and mark your calendars because the dates are September 15th and 16th, 2017 here in central Maryland. Each of the two retreats are limited to eight participants and I hope you'll join us. Also, if you're in Maryland, you may be interested in my weekly Daring Way group for women, which begins May 25th, 2017 in Severna Park in my office. Groups will meet Thursdays from 4 p.m. to 5.30 for 10 weeks. If you're interested in possibly participating, contact me at laura at lauraraganlcswc.com and I'll give you the details. There's a screening process to ensure best fit and group is limited to six people. Thank you for listening to Therapy Chat with your host, Laura Reagan, LCSWC. For more information, please visit therapychatpodcast.com.